Welcome to the World Wild Podcast, and uh, I'm Miles Irving. Just got back from a trip to Wales in which um, I managed to record a conversation with Bruce Parry, who did the Tribe series, All Being Well, that should be out next week. And uh, But my main purpose in going to Wales was for the Association of Foragers annual meetup, where we have foragers coming from mostly Great Britain and Ireland, but we do always have Wukash Wuchai coming over from Poland. He's, he's probably one of, the, one of the most consistent attendees. Um, so, you know, it's a great gathering, lots of lots of food cooked and lots of chats and things like forage basket making. And there's even a chap came that showed us how to make Bronze Age axes. So um, that was a good trip. On the way there, I managed to fit in a conversation with David Benjamin Blower, who's this week's guest. Um, and we've been trying to hook up and, and have a chat face-to-face um, for some time. So uh, being constrained by train times and things like that, it, it ended up that I could only have this conversation at Birmingham New Street train station. So we we uh, we found the quietest corner we could, and you'll, you'll think when you listen that we didn't try very hard because you can clearly hear the coffee machine in the background. Um, but... Uh, there we are. In the uh, the general principle of the podcast being to document actual conversations I have, um, I thought we would just go ahead and, and, and use this material, even though we are very clearly sitting in a busy cafe. Um, and, uh, you know, the the, uh, the nature of the sound quality reflects that. But it is a chat that I did have with an actual person in my actual life, and that's what I'm trying to document here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll introduce you to David. David is sort of got a few different hats he actually does a podcast himself called uh, nomad podcast we'll provide a link for that he is something of a traveling minstrel he did a wonderful album last year called um we really existed and we really did this which is kind of exploring the idea of the distinct possibility that we may go extinct and then some other intelligent life at some point would discover evidence of our existence and just just stand in complete wonder and bewilderment that we were the um, the author of our own demise, as it were. So, yeah, it's an incredible piece of work. Lots of, lots of readings and songs um, alternated between the readings, exploring the, the, um, the idea of collapse, climate change, extinction, and, and a sort of faith and theological position coming out of that, which is, which is uh, quite profound. Um, so that points to another aspect. David does some theology work around uh, sort of political theology mainly, um, which is pretty interesting, exploring the nature of law and power and um various other things so that's it you know he's a podcast guy traveling minstrel theologian and jolly nice chap so we'll get to the conversation shortly uh it has provoked some ideas in the meantime for me and i thought i'd like to share those so i i spoke to my sister um whose name is alice recently and, and she she just related a podcast that she'd been listening to that was sort of juxtaposing the sort of micro and the macro spheres of action. Uh, and that got me thinking. Apparently this guy was saying he only believes in the micro level. And and, and, and um, I started thinking, hmm, well, it'd be great if governments legislated about carbon emissions and things like that. That would that would um, get things on the right track. But then I thought, well, hang on a minute. The only reason we need legislation on that basis is because at the micro level, people's individual decisions linked up to other people's individual decisions i you know the 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 consensus we reach with others about the kind of life we're going to live because we're allowing that to be dictated from a top-down basis it means that uh, that that we're basically going along with um so we are you know collaborating with this system which from the top down is is uh is supporting you know uh, an economics based on oil economics based on greed you know all of these kind of things we are basically um complicit with it so that made me think well perhaps that guy's right you know that that we we have to concentrate on this micro level and begin to weave a new kind of society one that is based on um at the micro level, every decision being kind of treasured, uh, cradled, and just seen as very, very important because we understand that all of those small decisions about how we live have very important ramifications. But from there, I went on to think, well, hang on a minute. 
Um, well, actually, I was chatting this over with Joel, who edits the podcast, and he pointed out that that puts an enormous burden of responsibility on the individual. And that means that um, actually, it's a very yeah, untrue to life as uh, as it has always been. So we're in a situation now where, where like the onus is on us to make all these decisions about the basic infrastructure of life, where our food comes from, where everything comes from, and how we interact with that. But, you know, at no other time has there been such a responsibility that, that, that like the onus would be on us to basically redesign everything, start from scratch and, and say, I'm not going to do it like that. I'm going to do it like this. So that sort of feeds into the idea that there's a kind of collective responsibility where, you know, because, because okay, so the whole point of everything that's being said on this podcast is to point towards the the basic characteristics of, of nurturance and um, how the uh, the fabric of life is intricately and intimately woven together and gives rise to this support, this nurturance and holding of carrying of life, of uh, species being settled into ecosystems and, and supported by ecosystems. But individuals, um, individual people or individual animals or trees or whatever, also being nurtured and supported by this massive interconnectivity. So in the absence of that interconnectivity, uh, as isolated individuals, we can't be responsible for weaving again the fabric of life that's broken down. It must be that we uh, we need to um, find that nurturance in order to make any decisions that we do do. So I just thought from that that kind of starting point um, about what what it really would take to get things back on track you know where where we would need to go and the train of thought i had was was really prompted by something i've been reading just this morning i'm reading a book called aware by dan siegel this is aware the science of presence and in that he talks about um an emergent property of complex systems so without being able to go very deeply into that train of thought i will i will just quickly say that the, the idea in in uh, complexity theory is that lots of different things get linked together in lots of different ways. And the more complex that linkage is and the better quality the links themselves are, lots of, lots of really good quality links between lots of different things. At a certain point, something called an emergent property arises, i.e. something arises from that system of connectivity, which couldn't have been predicted in any way by all of the different parts that are lumped together. It is more than the sum of its parts, in other words. The whole is more than the sum of its parts and gives rise to something above and beyond those parts. And the best examples of that are the emergence of life from um, complex organic chemistry and then the emergence of consciousness from more and more complex arrangements of a diversity of nerve cells connected in different ways eventually gave rise to consciousness which couldn't have been predicted from just the fact of a, um, a lot of nerve cells being joined together um, but what Dan Siegel says in this um, passage that I was reading this morning is that self-organized self-organization is an emergent property of living systems and that um, that really speaks into the conundrum that, that, that I've just alluded to. So there you have individuals feeling responsible to sort of redesign the system, as it were. Whereas what this is saying is that if we have massive and, and high quality connectivity between elements of a system, and in this case, we're talking about people making a better society and so on, if we get the connectivity happening, then the emergent property of that system will be self-organization. So this is this is really speaking in favor of the the uh, the micro level of activity, but not putting the burden of responsibility on the shoulders of of the individuals to somehow come up with a better system, um, because that's you know actually that speaks to an idea of, of effort and control, which is quite against the idea of of being. Um, cradled and nurtured by the fabric of life as it were um so what we see is that the the uh the onus or the responsibility is fundamentally to seek out that kind of connectivity that if we connect together then um uh, in in many different ways with many um different people and there's lots of connectivity between groups and so on that are kind of searching out these ideas and these better ways of living it's that connectivity which will give rise to an emergent property of self-organization and i i think that probably links very well to kind of anarchist philosophies that are saying um, no to government, but they're not really saying no to government. They're saying no to this imposed form of coercive state government, whilst at the same time pointing to the fact that if, if, if people are left to their own devices, they form um, linkages and, and, and they organize and develop, for example, ways of managing the common resources by consensus and, and discussion and so on. 
So that I found that train of thought I kind of I found quite helpful, um, but it did point me to something else or, or something you know above and beyond that to look at the kind of self-organizing system that that we need at the moment above and beyond you know us learning to have a, a good society considering humans on their own but obviously the, the the real problem is that we do not have a good society uh in which human beings are citizens of the biosphere as it were you know uh, important members of the biosphere in a way that uh, is is functional and um, and beneficial obviously at the moment the way that we interact and engage with the biosphere is very destructive not just for the biosphere but for ourselves so the conclusion i came to thinking about that was that we need um most of all most of all we need this connectivity um between human culture and the biosphere you know we need we need to find linkages that um integrate us back in with living systems and that linkage needs to be many 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 you know like we need to find ways that all as all sorts of aspects of our daily life from the point we wake up to the point we go to sleep or indeed maybe there's ways we could be linking to land better when we're when we're asleep who knows but um we need as individuals to be linking up with with landscapes and ecology and we need the way that we relate to other people to involve linkages with land and ecology because what i'm kind of envisaging or or, or dreaming about i guess in saying this is that the emergent property of self-organization kicks in uh, whereby people and land we don't have to be thinking about um you know does this decision do this to the you know the greenhouse gas levels or, or whatever because we've woven something which which has this emergent property of self-organization having concentrated on building linkages cultural linkages with land then we um we arrive at that point so i'm not sure how um clearly i've managed to convey what i'm trying to say there but hopefully you'll be able to tease some meaning out of it because it does tie into some of the themes i explore with david okay so let's get on with the chat with david now it's funny that so, so often the um what's talked about as the big headache is it's going to be much harder to import and export food um yeah. now that we've left which is yeah. true yeah and that's a shame i kind of want to move towards not having to import and export so yeah. much food and maybe just eating what's what's around so it's not really the rationale on which i voted to remain no it's um it's other things it's, I, I sort of the arguments given for leaving and the arguments given for remaining neither of those felt like my tribe really ah interesting yeah. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the arguments for um, leaving were, you know, faintly xenophobic or yeah, outright yeah. racist so or, yeah, just like, an, well, an anxiety about free movement of people in one form or another. Mm, that's not something I'm, I don't want to be part of that, really. Uh, but then the arguments given for remaining, and I vote to remain, was, um, I mean, so often it was wanting to be part of a, a big capitalist's block where you're um, yeah. able to move stuff you know miles and miles and miles without um, too much trouble yeah I'm, I'm all for sort of good trade deals but I mean I didn't vote to remain for a you know for a capitalist uh, ideal I, I wanted uh, to be part of um, nations that collaborate yeah. towards the common good yeah. but it was it was it was all sort of Economic fear-mongering on the Remain side—that was, uh, uh, or you know, that was that was the sort of the, the big narrative coming from the powers, wasn't it? So, also, I feel like it's a big anxiety kind of thing. It's like um, nation-state as a political paradigm is kind of collapsing. So, there's that anxious reaching for the past and trying to build the strongest nation-state with the strongest borders and the biggest walls that you can. There's this kind of anxiety about a paradigm that's passing because the world just doesn't work that way now. And, no one, everyone's quite anxious about how it will work and so on. Most of all, I just, <laughs> I hope, I hope that there's just something else on the news than Brexit for a while. <laughs> there won't be, will there? It'll, it'll just be talking about how it's all panning out. And then I don't know how long it'll be before this just seems like foolishness, like really not. I don't know, it won't be that long, I don't think, before we look back and say, 
this was really not the most important thing happening in 2018, 19, well, the, 20. Yeah. I guess the great thing is all, all the Extinction Rebellion stuff and, and everything else that's pushed climate change far more into the centre of people's awareness has happened in spite of it's, it's amazing that that has happened. Mm. But at the same time, it's, it's meant that it's just highly unlikely to get it to the top of the political agenda because of Brexit. So the man in the street, mm. I think, is far more tuned into the fact that we are basically screwed if we don't do something about that. And I think, I think, I think, I think that's shifted enormously in the last 12, mm. 18 months. Just, you know, yeah, I think so. Yeah, even yeah, the last twelve months. I mean, I remember. Um, well, the first Extinction Rebellion actions were last spring, weren't they? Yeah. Was that were they the first ones? I mean, that was the first kind of big push. I remember that. Uh, last, last spring. You mean last uh, last April? Oh, no, two thousand nineteen. No, no, they were, they were, they were going in 2018. Right, right. The first ones, I think, were like October. Were well, you tuned in back then? I just had friends that went. And, yeah, yeah. And, and there was a little bit of activity in, in uh, Canterbury, so that there were posters and flyers. And, I remember late 2018 hearing that Rowan Williams had kind of signed, you know, one of the signatories saying time for mass civil disobedience is, yeah. is, uh, is now. Well, Williams, back in the day, when he was still Archbishop, he, he, he went, I forget if it was a year or... But he refused to fly him, trying to keep up with his itinerary as Archbishop of Canterbury. So he, you know, he's, mm. he's able to just not go or catch a boat. Or, yeah. You know, he, he said it was incredibly hard. Yeah. But, I mean, that back in the day, I, I mean, unfortunately, it's contrasting that in terms of uh, bishops and so on. I'm just rereading um, uh, Tom Wright, for anyone listening, it's at least Bishop of Durham and so on. Um, from 2012, and he's talking about the church's responsibility to engage with uh, ecological issues, and he doesn't mention climate change from the beginning to the end of the book. Hey. Well, he, well, he mentions acid rain, and he mentions um, deforestation, I think. I mean, that's what's clicked for me in the last 12 months, to be honest. You know, I, yeah. I've gone into numbness about climate change up yeah. until quite recently. I was just I stopped really thinking about things that I was really banging on about five or six years previously. Yeah. I just wanted to numbness, thinking, well, this, you know, we're all just in this boat, it's going to sink, and I guess I was just blanking it out, but in the last 12 months, I felt really like, okay, you know, it does look like there might be some value. So then what? I'm... Oh, sorry, Karen. Well, just in a collective, yeah. I'm all stirred up about it because it might lead to something. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. And I've been sort of, I mean, we're all sort of retrospectively learning about it now. I mean, I was um, uh, learning a bit about the first IPCC report, which yeah. was 1990, I think, or 91, something like that, 30 years ago, basically. And that was the first time there was a big collective report from scientists um, commissioned by, oh, was, it, was it by the UN? Yeah, I think it was the UN who commissioned it, isn't it? And... Um, and that's the that's the point at which there was a sort of widespread agreement in the scientific community. The climate's changing. Um, these are the reasons. These are the possible outcomes. It really, really, really could be really bad. That's thirty years ago, and it is just well. I mean, speaking for myself, it's the last year, year and a half when it's um, found its way into my head and my heart. Um, so there is this uh, this sudden acceleration happening right now. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, but it's very interesting to watch that happen on mass, isn't it? To watch um, people as a as a mass engaging with new um, emotional realms of possibility and catastrophe, and especially in a situation where it's not like you know we're here in a cafe in Birmingham, England. It's, it's not we're not feeling the brunt of it, you know. That's it. We're not. That's it. Yeah, but it's that that kind of recognition uh, that something's coming. Oh, I guess there's something almost prophetic about it, isn't there? Something Jeremiah-esque about that kind of uh, what do you do when all the evidence says that everything's about to change in really alarming ways, but you haven't hit it yet. You get normalcy bias, don't you? You get um, 
uh, or you great with your normalcy bias? You assume that tomorrow will be like today, just because today is like yesterday. It's a weird. It's a very. It's a very weird time. Very interesting time. Can I tell you something that I observed in all of it? Earnestness is now okay. Yeah. For a long while, you weren't allowed to be earnest. That was deeply uncool. You just had to be ironic self. If you, if, you, if you got at all kind of serious, like you actually meant something, you then have to make a joke to kind of. Yeah, no, sort of constant irony is a bit of um, a cultural mark of empire, I think, isn't it? It's that, that layer of nothing really matters, and everything's a joke. Because you're removed from the consequences of everything by a few steps and you sort of cope with that awkwardness by just making a joke out of everything. Yeah, again, to the point where you can't do that in the same way. I don't know what's possible in terms of what happens from here. When you encounter a time when there is sort of um, a mass realisation of the weight of the time, does that give me hope? It does, but I don't know hope for what. I don't. Um, I'm still not certain of how much power we have to change the structures we live in, even once we've realised that they're they're killing us. I, I'm I'm sort of I'm almost more impressed by our ability to continue doing things we know are killing us, uh, just because we don't know how to take the machine apart. We, we don't seem to operate with it at that level. We're going to have to think and work really really fast to be able to make that kind of scale of change happen. Part of me thinks we're not really good at changing until things actually hit the fan, you know. My perspective is a little bit different. I, I just think the key to sorting this all out is not freaking out about climate change, even though that does alert us to the fact that things ought to be different. You know, I do think that the, that, that hanging over us and loads of other cultural factors at the moment mean that we are in a state of flux where there is a suspension of the usual rules to a certain extent, i.e. people are open to being told this way of living doesn't actually cut it and, and, and there is a completely different way of doing things over here, you know, whether that's yoga or... Yeah. And I think the thing that, that is probably could, could be most powerful um, is just to point out that people are eating bread that doesn't satisfy Because, damn it, I don't care how caught up in the machine people are. It's not that hard to just notice that you're not satisfied. Do you feel good? Do you feel grounded? Do you feel belonging? Do you feel purposeful? And I think that's the opening. To, mm. to not, not, not actually to dismantle the machine, but to walk away from it. Like, because mm. to me, the, the issue is that we've got this juxtaposition of machine and organism. But damn it, we are an organism. So the organism wins until we become cyborgs and there's a whole bunch, and there's a lot of cyborgy things happening now. I like the fact that we're glued to screens and we can't move anywhere without a machine. We're getting cars and planes and things like that where we used to just move in our soft, wonderful bodies with the structures and all this upright and propellers forward and eyes and gaze to navigate and so on. Used to be the way that we did as an animal, like the other ones, you know. Now, so many of these things, getting all the stuff that we need all day is made by machines instead of weaving and foraging and cooking and, and so on. But, you know, damn it, we're still an organism for all of that. We are not machines yet. We are being encroached upon in all sorts of ways by machines. But we are actually still an organism. I think that noticing that we're not satisfying is point number one. That's still true because if there was an issue of satisfaction becoming a non-issue, then we'd be a machine like that. Mm. I think I share that hope, and it, in a way, times times of collapse are the most fertile times for letting go, for new things, or even the recovery of old things to happen. I think that is the hopeful thing um, for me at this point. I suppose my uncertainty is whether that as a means of avoiding collapse, I'm not hopeful about that. I almost feel like the collapse is necessary. Um, well, I'm not kind of rubbing my hands together about it. I'm hopeful that, that um, a recovered human life is possible, you know, out of what falls apart. But, um, I mean, I suppose I'm fascinated by these transitional moments in history where, like, uh, the way the world works just fractures and falls apart and doesn't work anymore because things have changed, things have moved on. The weight of its foolishness just takes it to breaking point. And that, that just happens in cycles in human history, doesn't it? Um, 
And there is that sense that each one of those collapses is a little bit more catastrophic than the one before because... We've got better at it. Yeah, we've got better at <laughs> balls and, and shit up. Yeah. Now we've added to our global catastrophe. <laughs> the most awesome collapse and mass human history's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. So the first time we've called one of these um, a mass extinction. There's been mass extinction events, but this is I think this is the first one that... That's, um, by one species, but I mean, there was one caused by one massive asteroid. Right, yeah. Never one species. And uh, all that stuff blows my mind. This, this is, the, is this the fifth or the sixth one? I can't remember. But there is an arc to these things where the, the you know, the hubris of however many hundred years before just stacks up. I, I think really we're, we're we're paying the price for what was rotten about the Enlightenment from from the start. Yeah, I'm I'm so unenthusiastic about <laughs> progress and uh, enlightenment and, and so on. Um, not because you know knowledge is a bad thing or science or you know these are beautiful things, um, but it was inseparable, you know, in its inception from European Eurocentric exceptionalism, colonialism. Greed, pride, capitalism. You know, the way Francis Bacon would talk about science was just horrifying. He'd talk about nature with this horrible kind of rapey language, like putting nature on the rack and making it, penetrating it and making it yield its secrets. You know, it's just like absolutely horrifying and foul. But, I mean, those are the, those are the really messed up words of, you know, somebody from hundreds of years ago. But that's that's exactly what... Now we're really paying the price because that's what we've been doing and we're still doing it. We're treating nature with that kind of abusive um, loathing and sooner, sooner or later that comes back and that's now. You know? I don't think that goes away quietly. I, mean, I, I, I was rebuked kind of in a very sort of uh, underhand way by a guy I met in Australia who's worked with um, Aboriginal elders for about 25 years slowly, painstakingly getting their knowledge down in different ways, which is a depressing thing in itself. The only reason he's doing that is because the culture is gone in. They wouldn't need him to do that. It wasn't for the fact that the kids don't want to take it on or something. So he's getting it down in their own language. Paid by the government to do so, which is kind of nice. But anyway, we're out there we're driving out to this uh, community. It's get to see some of the parks and see how they use and whatnot. But he says, you know, indigenous people, he said they... They're just there doing what they're doing today. They just do what they're doing, and that's the world they're living. But of course, you have an idea, don't you? And um, that's the difference. And I'm like, there's me kind of thinking, yeah, but my idea is how to kind of help these guys to get another, yeah, get another white dickhead. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> you have an idea, don't you? Come on. Yeah, but you're the ideas, guys. Look at my idea. It's quite a good one. <laughs> Oh, fairly said. I said, no, you're right, Glenn. I said, yeah, I've been thinking. He said, yeah, that's the trouble. I love the um, the Greek word metanoia. Yeah. Yeah, which appears in our Bibles as repentance. Yeah. Sounds very religious and groveling and wretched. Metanoia, sort of over... Think. Over, no, over knowing. Thinking again. Scratching your head, looking back and thinking, oh, it wasn't a very good idea, was it? So that's the opposite to the other kind of overthinking then. Uh, yeah. You can overthink something or you can overthink something. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, there's overthinking, but I think this is more thinking over. <laughs> yeah. Thinking over. Think yeah. over. So it's about a relinquishment, isn't it? It's putting down your... And it, it's, it's that vision of, like, we're so addicted to our idea. Or to the way, you know, the way that we've done it or the brilliant idea we had because it was such a good idea when it started. So, it's, I mean, this is that moment for us, isn't it, of relinquishing, putting down... We're finding it so hard to contemplate putting down our energy systems, our economic systems, our food systems, our system systems, all the systems. So it's a time of opening up the fingers and mournfully letting something go, isn't it? And that'll be good. It will be a good thing. Another line in your song, I really like the hands in the soil song. 
it says brothers to the edges, sisters to the leverage, or the other way around, sisters to the leverage, which way around is it? Yeah, can't remember. Yeah, anyway, that's the. Where does that fit into this conversation? I mean, the Francis Bacon um, words just say it all for me. There's a, another one of us white European men with an idea and his language for describing it is so patriarchal not just patriarchal but um, yeah psychopathic sociopathic sexually abusive rapey the, the, the feminine is absolutely seen as an object of use an object of knowledge that uh, means to an end um, uh, a thing for the male male desire, male want, male hubris. I don't know, working in the theological world, it's interesting seeing people rethink their theological language and, and work and vision in this regard. What Patriarchal power, male power, the, the process of putting that down and stepping aside and, and being silent, making a quiet space for the, the women among us to speak and not be interrupted or corrected or shouted over or even met with the howls of agreement from men that really are ways of the men saying yeah yeah I already thought that <laughs> um, that's there are so many levels on which that needs to happen that it's you know I don't I don't I despair of where to begin we just have to begin. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been there's something about that, that bacon thing, or the you know the overall approach, because I think it's a mistake in the first place. Because the, 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 the idea that something needed to be taken. It's like the Aboriginal Australians, you know, people went there busy taking their land, and and yet they've been going across the desert, dying of thirst, starving, and refused to engage with Aboriginal people. But they would leave food outside their tent kept them alive as they travelled across the desert. Most people whose land has been taken and still looked after because, you know, they felt that hospitality and duty of care to someone that was in their land. And um, I kind of feel like uh, it's a bit like a delusional thing. So um, it's like you, um, I don't know my father, but just pretend you gave me that fiver and it was good fun when you gave it to me. And then I ran over there and told my mate that Suck up, bro. You know, I must nick a fiver from him. You know what I mean? Because I'm deluded. I don't understand what's just happened. Just not mm. giving a fiver. But my mindset is not, I don't like this man being kind of letting people give me stuff for anything. But I managed to really tell the story in a, in a way that I honestly believe it's true. So I think science is 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 the the land very kindly enabling us to understand how things work so that we can get on in the world. It's just that. Mm -hmm. She, as it were, is so benign that she, even knowing that we're going to do what we're going to do, she still says, here you go, this is how it works. And then we reach our car, I'll nick the fiver from her. And, and, and we do all this terrible stuff. Whereas, I believe science is just like all of the indigenous knowledge. Homo sapiens for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. I've always heard land telling us how things work and what to do. But when we were in this reciprocal relationship, we were very grateful. Thank you so much for the money. I might just have a cup of tea. I really appreciate that. And we would be reverent, thankful, and careful to reciprocate this, this, this duty of care. Man's mm -hmm. told us what to do, we'll make sure that we look after it with, with this knowledge about what we do. And uh, I think we're getting there now with some of the stuff that's coming out, you know, like, you know, we can uh, have this kind of anti-science critique when we look back to those guys. But like, look at what's going on now with, with um, scientific insights into the gut flora and what's going on underneath the soil, for example. Views into the unseen realm and showing us how remarkable, wonderful, interrelated, and non-hierarchical everything is, and makes us realise that, like, if we if we follow these wonderful lessons, we'll be thriving and flourishing. So it, it kind of we just if we'd have hung with these initial insights that that made everything look a bit cause and effecty and, and linear causality and so on, which came out of the, the early. Uh, Enlightenment times, so they gave rise to crude machines, you know. But if we had not been boys with our toys allowed to just run riot, you know, 
it was all the other factors in play at the time that meant that those kind of discoveries became like deadly weapons in the hands. You know, I mean, it's better analogy than you put a machine gun in the hand of a three-year-old, but yeah. But the thing is, it didn't need to be a machine gun, sort of, if that analogy works. But the very same thing that ended up being so destructive. If we'd have just hung with it for a while and tinkered around and said, okay, well, what's the implications of this and so on? Which is what any land based culture would have done. Mm. That, that's, that's, and that's another weird, you know, it's like the conservatism of those cultures was a, was a thing that meant, you know, and we, we have to really learn that conservatism, i.e., don't just go storm in the head. Yeah, yeah. I was reading, um, ah, what's the book? The Human Planet. I can't remember who the two writers are. How we created the Anthropocene. Right, right, right. right. So there's um, two scientists making the argument for a new geological age triggered by human activity. Yeah, I've heard of this. I'm not good. Ah, it's really good. It's very good. I suppose one of the reflections that was coming to me was that, like, at what point did we begin using this kind of extractive language? Yeah. Um, or thinking of ourselves as other from nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than as as part of it, I mean, we're part of the ecological whole. Is the is the reality? It's a, it's a weird delusion that we're not. But I, it struck me that in order to, to to think in an imperial way, if you want to colonize another place, first thing you have to do is separate yourself out from it as other, and then you can take it. <laughs> then you get that pleasure of taking the fiver and saying, "I got the fiver." Um, and so part of the process of that that mindset of hubris necessitates you sort of separating yourself out as not the thing. Self-alienation kind of. Yeah, self-alienation, exactly that. And um, so then what does the process of reintegration look like? Where we say, well, there's a relationship of reciprocity, you know, with the earth and with us as as creatures. Uh, Because we're earth creatures. We belong to this ecological whole. Um, but we're behaving as though we didn't. Um, we're behaving as though it's in, you know, inanimate stuff that is there for us to extract as, as a complete other. But that, I mean, that's such a huge, a huge shift for the for the you know the Western mindset and, and where it's gone. And I mean, I'd be interested to learn more about other parts of the human community and ways ways of viewing this. I mean, that's where that symbolism came from. Uh, hands in the soil, you know. I was, I was actually reading another Tom Wright book, second Tom Wright reference of the discussion, ding, where he was talking about um, symbolic practices of the early messianic community. So rather than thinking of very religious concepts of sacrament and ritual and da-da-da-da-da, things that people would do in order to say who, who they were in the world. So you'd break bread and it was a way of remembering the death of a peasant messiah and sort of a a meal of solidarity or you would get plunked under water and pulled up again it was a way of saying you died to the present political powers and you've risen to a, a new imagination of the way the world could be so there's an idea of birth in there as well isn't it it must be like coming up yeah yeah rebirth newness resurrection all these sorts of images so I, I mean I was contemplating what kind of um, symbolic practices um feel important for human communities today we should put our hands in the soil because it's i was looking for a symbolic practice that would enable us to sort of reintegrate like uh, to um recapture the um the imagination of being part of the ecological whole the reality of it it's more than imagination when you put your hands in the soil you're getting bacteria on you that boost your immune system it's been raining any time recently there's, there's things called phytoncides coming off the bacteria are produced that also boost your immune system and make you feel calm and lovely so mm. and there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on but no, I mean I think that's the key point we're out well, we're still here how's that look how can we be out of this whilst we're here but we're not here that's almost yeah, the, not here. it's almost the saddest thing isn't it <laughs> Yeah, feeling like you're not at home when you're at home. When you're at home, it's like there being some kind of thing that means you can't touch someone, you know, like they're right next to you, but like you can't touch them. Yeah, it's yeah. that non-contact, I mean, that is our issue. So I think that contact is the remedy. You know? So like you saying, hands in the soil, yeah, I don't know, awakening to presence, I suppose, of a 
of any kind, actually, because all presence is, is living stuff. And I've heard you talking about, I've forgotten the phrase you used, but you're, you were talking about the, like, our, our skins and organ, and there's a point yeah. of contact in which we're porous with the stuff around us. membranes is something that I work around a lot, just, just thinking about it, like any kind of point of contact we have, whether that is like through our senses, like, you know, back of your eyes, inside of your ears, touching your skin, inside your nose, on your lips and your tongue, all of these things are where you encounter signs coming in from outside, but of course as soon as they hit those skin bits of you, the surface of you, they go through that and into your being, your felt experience, through your synapses and whatever. You know, within your body, you, you are then, you become one with the inside, has come, the outside has come in, you know, and now your inside bleeds out again, as it were, and you, you, you reflect what you've just experienced. You're now a product of what you've seen and heard, and the product's allowed you to you're a child almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who you are next is, 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 is the child of that sensory experience. And the same thing with breathing in, you know, we're taking oxygen in from the outside and that's becoming us and what's inside of us is coming out with uh, CO2 and food passing through your gut. You know. this is, all of that is skin and the outside coming in and, you know, mm. and so on. But I, but I think that's a really, that, I think that is, that is actually a reality and a metaphor. I'll explore it, but just, just as an aside, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking like it's, it's the thing itself and the metaphor, and like it's almost like I don't know where one stops and one, and I'm not sure it's supposed to. I'm, I'm yeah. increasingly convinced that like the indigenous worldview, they, they didn't see metaphor as being a different species of reality to what we're calling the thing itself. You know, they didn't see it's totally blurred, and and, and that's yeah. good because kind of to work with metaphor. You kind of have to have that kind of sense of it being real that we lack. It's our just a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that, that this skin in out thing, semi-permeable membrane, like the the, the, the the vital contact with our surroundings through getting the stuff you need from the place where you live. You know, that's 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 and that means I'm not going to check my phone because I'm talking to David. You know, that that sort of thing is also not getting what you need from the place where you live. We're constantly interacting with something elsewhere yeah, because yeah. we're experiencing the world through these communities. Obviously there's a benefit to that up to a point, you know. But my question is like, to what extent now does the stuff that we do for most of the hours that we're awake foster that vital living connection where we're touching what's around us vitally mm. and then the fact that we've eaten this, we've worn that, we've talked in this way instead of that way. You know, um, I'm making fun movements here as if I'm texting by the way. Um, you know, to what extent does all of those things that we've done in that 24 hour period foster these 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 organic linkages that we're grounded and rooted in the organic world instead of this weird world that we create, really weird, alienated other world, which is mostly the product of machines, but it's actually the product of abstractions, thanks to Mr. Bacon and Mr. Bacon. And, like they, they, they've created this other world that's no world, it's a nothing, it's a, non, it's a void. It's like, wow. I think this is one of the one of the threads that's created massive change and new new awareness right now is our re-embodiment. We're, we're re-connecting uh, with our bodies and yeah. recognising ourselves as... And, you know, Western... Um, intellectual history is profoundly dualistic, isn't it? It's very, you know, it's very yeah. sort of there's spirit and there's matter, and you know they're they're, they're, they're very different. Like the kings who get their good stuff from this other yeah, yeah, it's all very platonic. It's so it's so deep in sort of in our sort of thought history, isn't it? Um, but something happened, like when when you sort of reconnect with your your body, yeah. you, you also reconnect with your and you, and you recognise yourself as embodied. You, you are, I am matter, you know. Um, but but then once I engage with that, I immediately begin to think, re- recognise myself as being in situation, in place, like in a place. You your know, body's how you connect to all this stuff. You're not in your body. You can't. Yeah. yeah, I'm not in my body nowhere. I'm in my body here. You, you know, we're material. I remember reading Walter Brueggemann, old, you know, theologian. Um, of the, of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is, is sort of a theology book on the Old Testament. It's just like 
Jewish um, Jewish religion is intensely materialistic. It's totally materialistic. Um, you know, I, I grew up in in churches. Materialism was always the dirtiest word imaginable. Platonic idea that material somehow terrible things are escaping from. It. Um, but that's not really the kind of the Hebrew biblical imagination. No, it's isn't it? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see. How do we get so gnostic? It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So we're, I mean, we're in recovery from this, and this is part of what. I mean, I don't know what comes first, chicken or the egg. But when you sort of begin to encounter an ecological crisis, when you begin to think about how dependent we are on the topsoil and the quality of it for everything we eat, when we begin to realise you know, how many days you can take without food or, you know, all these sorts of things. You just, you're put back in touch with the material miracle, you know, the, the, material, uh, uh, the miracle of material life, how beautiful it is, how fathomless and extraordinary and, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful and, um, and fills me with awe and sadness at what we do to it and how we disregard it. Yeah. For some reason we've been trained part of this alienation is we ignore what's just you know it's just like we've got something as you say so wonderful so beautiful immediately present with us if you can't get out in the forest hey you're in your body Mm. that's also this beautiful thing Mm -hmm. fathomably beautiful yeah yeah just manage to be still for a moment and just feel how good this feels just you don't need to go anywhere else to anything it just feels so good to be in a body I mean on the whole a body that's just a normal body mm. it feels so good to be in a body see I bet so many people don't feel that way and it's it's this weird like there's this sort of mass trauma of being disconnected from our bodies as a, as a sort of civilization in the west for so long that we're all desperately do, doing yoga to try and work out how to feel good in our bodies you know but, and, and yoga works is wonderful but I, 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 I often kind of end up thinking yeah, hang on a minute this is a remedial action mm. this is trying to get me to experience normal life yeah yeah you know, a I mean, we're trying to sort of awaken ourselves out of our ignorance, aren't we? That's uh, trying trying to wake up into our bodies. Sorry, this has been um, brief. Is it? I hope it's been worth it. Great, we covered some ground. So once again, thanks for joining us for this week's Worldwide podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to David. There will be a link to two versions of his album that I mentioned. The uh, We Really Existed and We Really Did This. He's just redone it, an acoustic version where he does extended readings between the songs. And um, I believe that's available as a download for, for a fiver, which is a pretty good deal. And I didn't quite finish telling you about the traveling minstrel bit. So I've told you that David's a musician and, and, and has made this album. He's made a lot of albums prior to that um but the really fun thing is he he did a a tour of living rooms this year performing that album um and i was privileged to be in quite a large living room in in the big house in sussex last year to to see that in action it was fantastic so um i'm not sure if david's planning to continue the the um living room tour business but he certainly travels around and plays his songs so do click on the links and 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 explore that also, we'll put the link to the Association of Foragers once again. Um, uh, all these links are on the Forager website um, where where the uh, podcast is hosted. Just click the link to podcasts on the Forager website. And the Association of Foragers website will enable you to find a forager near you, certainly if you're in the British Isles and in parts of Europe. I think we've got one at least in Australia We have members all over the world, so it's well worth exploring that. Okay, that's it for this week's World Wild Podcast. Put your hands in the soil. 
feel the groan and feel the joy All sit with the hurt Stare into the dirt Occupy the bandstands Gather lost citizens Climb down your pyramids Relinquish your privilege Welcome strangers to your table As though they were angels Make space for the spent Feel the lament Break your vows to the powers Plant trees and grow flowers Share the resources Free all the horses All citizens Put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Can you feel the joy And be still And be still Down by the riverside Who's not afraid to die? Emerge from the waves Broke loose from the powers of the age Live now citizens Of what's left of the age to come Behold the Messiah dying For the lands we are crucifying Break bread and take drink All feel and think Shed tears every day for everything we throw away Mourn for your families Mourn for your enemies Sing to the stars Console our grieving hearts All citizens Put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Feel the joy and be still and be still. Clap your hands to your mouth, let your pride go south, put your hand on your head, make terms with the dead. Put your hands on your face Too late to learn from our mistakes Put your hand on your heart Can we stop what we start? Sisters to the leverage Brothers to the edges Youth to the floor This bleak future is yours All ye of noble bone Join the scum of the earth Gather round the powerless there's the power that can save us All citizens Put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Can you feel the joy And be still 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 And be still